Hello, and welcome to Strange Weapons True Crime. This is the podcast where every episode we look at various crimes that are all tied together by the same type of unusual item being used in each incident. I'm your host, Robert Escobar, Kiki for short, K-I-K-I. I am a court-recognized weapons expert, author, martial artist, and antique weapons specialist. My particular specialty within all of that, subspecialty I guess, is odd and overlooked weapons. On that note, I'm the author of the book Saps, Blackjacks, and Slungshots, A History of Forgotten Weapons. Today we're going to be talking about the ice pick used as a weapon. And to talk about the ice pick, let's deal with a little bit of history first. Quote, These hot, humdrum summer days bring to mind nostalgic memories of the old horse-drawn ice wagon coming down the street. End quote. New York Times, 1960. That horse-drawn wagon was not driving itself. There was an ice man in charge. This used to be a job. The ice man delivered ice to houses in a neighborhood. That ice would then go not into a refrigerator, which we have today, but into, as it was called back then, the ice box. This was the proto-refrigerator. And as you can imagine, this is what kept your food preserved as well as possible. Certainly beat, you know, room temperature, right? So yeah, you would get regular deliveries from the ice man. And you can see these great old photographs of ice men breaking up these giant chunks of ice from their wagons to then carry a block, you know, into a certain apartment. And when that was the kind of ice that you had in your house, you can imagine it was pretty hard to make ice cubes, right? You could not just walk up to the refrigerator, insert the cup into a certain slot, and have perfectly sized ice cubes fall down. No, if you wanted smaller chunks of ice from the major one that got delivered to your house, you needed to break it up yourself. And to do that, you needed an ice pick. Or something like it, but yeah, a dedicated tool was designed for this purpose. An ice pick is basically just a spike with a handle, almost always a wooden handle. Very similar to a screwdriver in shape and dimensions, the spike being thinner. And so these were a ubiquitous item during the years of the 19th and 20th century when ice delivery was a thing. You know, in our first two episodes, we covered items that are sometimes used as weapons. That is not the case here. The ice pick became a very common tool for violence. This thing was all over police blotters. Of particular note is that it became a mob classic. Many notorious hitmen used it. It also had such a prolific fighting history that in knife and sword terminology, you call a reverse grip an ice pick grip. So, what's a reverse grip? Imagine you were going to drive a screwdriver through a pumpkin with the motion you'd use to pound your fist angrily on a desk. How would you hold that screwdriver? That's a reverse or ice pick grip. And it really is something that the ice pick, an item that came along thousands of years after the first daggers, made such an impression on people as a weapon that it became the common name for this hold. Also on the technical side, this tool is clearly a piercing weapon. In knife terms, we'd call it a stiletto. Quick aside, all fighting knives are broadly classified as butcher or stiletto style blades. Butcher blades are broad, think of a kitchen knife, you know, a large kitchen knife, and stiletto blades are fairly straight and narrow, but not used by people who are on the straight and narrow. Many imagine the classic 1950s switchblade when they hear the word stiletto, but that term and weapon is much older and much broader. An ice pick is the purest of stilettos in use. Like the original stilettos from centuries back in Italy, it can really only be used to, well, poke holes into people. A book on forensic science says our tool, quote, goes deeper into the body than the layers of skin. The weapon may damage muscles, fat, and organs. Because blades tend to be smooth and sharp, the edges of the wound are typically clean and smooth, end quote. 
And that's a segue for introducing the cheery concept of fatal torso penetration. A slash can stay shallow but still sever an artery, right? It can still kill. A puncture wound, like an ice pick delivers, however, needs to go deep to do serious damage. And while designed only for breaking ice, this long, thin spike is well made for doing that and crossing said threshold, which is roughly four inches. Also on the wonky side, I'll point out that the term ice pick is sometimes used to describe what is actually an ice axe. Ironically, the ice axe is in fact a pick. Really. Go into the hardware store, say you need a pick for breaking up rocks, and they'll hand you something that is shaped very much like an ice axe, used in mountain climbing, that kind of thing. And they won't hand you anything that looks like our kitchen tool. So, ice axes really should be called ice picks, but right or wrong, our instrument is called an ice pick. And the point, pun intended, is that we have to be careful when reading about true crime committed with an ice pick, because the writer might be actually describing an axe, or a pick proper. For instance, some researching will lead you to believe that the most famous ice pick murder in world history was the killing of Leon Trotsky in Mexico City by Stalin's agent in 1941. But it wasn't, because that man used an ice axe. The other mislabeling danger is crimes being ascribed to an ice pick, even though it is only known that something like one was used. For instance, there's a highly disturbing crime that's thankfully out of scope for us in this episode, but it comes up a lot when you research this topic. I mean, it's always in the top results. And it took a lot of reading, but I finally found proof that it was a screwdriver that was used in that killing and not an ice pick. That crime, by the way, should you be so inclined, is called, well, the video that gave it its name is called One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. Well, time to jump in. That disturbing story that we're not going to cover, by the way, that included the screwdriver, it had cannibalism, just one of the disturbing things about it. But don't worry, so does one of ours. This happened in Richmond Bay, California, 2020. Some unfortunate police officers were called out to a house when someone saw a man standing over a woman's body with plenty of blood visible. The cops rush over, enter, and find a 37-year-old man, uh ingesting his 90-year-old grandmother's flesh. He had used both a knife and an ice pick to kill her. Police ordered the man to stop, and he, quote, continued what he was doing, end quote. They used a stun gun on him, and that was that. Ice picks stopped being a common household item a long time ago, but for some reason, they're still used in a lot of modern crimes. This was a surprise to me. I thought the only place ice picks could still be found was in antique shops, but no, not so. There's even a 2012 New York Times article entitled, Ice Picks Are Still Used as Weapons. They interview locals who confirm these were experiencing kind of a 21st century rebound at the time of the article. The owner of a hardware store in the Bronx said he wouldn't sell one to anyone who didn't show ID. And it's not like the ice pick has some particular advantage. Most knives are deadlier. This popularity and resurgent popularity is, I would argue, all about psychology. There's a nasty, nefarious aspect to this old-school tool. Somehow, that reputation survived its almost complete retirement from daily life decades ago. Arguably close to a century ago. Speaking of that, searching for newspaper headlines that include the term ice pick produced surprising results. They start up in the mid-19th century, and then really pick up in the last quarter of that century, so the late 1800s. But then there's a noticeable spike, pun intended, 
in the numbers in the 1940s. They then stay at a very elevated level all the way into the 21st century. To me, this is a clear indication of how organized crime's embrace of the tool turned it into something new in the popular consciousness. It was a street weapon before the 1940s, but the famous mob hits and changed its reputation to that of a true weapon. And so how would the mob kill with it? Less as a tool used in scraps and rumbles than as a dedicated hit tool, as an assassination instrument, like we alluded to earlier. One way was to have your boys hold the victim down, of course, so you could deliver a surgical stab to the brain. Another was to ask the target for a light or a cigarette. He reaches into his coat, and while his attention is elsewhere, you ram the ice pick into his brain. The ear or the kill spot below slash behind the ear, well-known knockout spot in martial arts circles, uh, were the favorites. Some killers learned to go through the ear canal with such precision that doctors assumed the victims died of a natural cerebral hemorrhage. And you think about that, there's no sign of violence except for a tiny hole in the eardrum that could easily be missed. On the other side of the coin, mob hits were also often about sending a message, and the ice pick was a tool for doing that too. A New York City detective put it this way, quote, Murder is not only to take somebody's life, but to terrorize. The word goes out. Do you want to wind up in a landfill somewhere, stabbed with an ice pick? That was the message that went out to people who didn't comply with the rules of the mafia. End quote. And this is why you have kills that make no attempt to fool a doctor with this tool. That includes the unsolved murder of model and casino girl Estelle Carey in 1943. Nick Cercella noticed Carey was adept at running a dice game and keeping the clientele entertained with both her looks and engaging personality. He recruited her away to a club of his own, where she became a big hit. She was often brought in when high rollers walked in, that kind of a thing. Also, she was pretty adept at sleight of hand and therefore cheating, and she helped the house win many times that way making her that much more valuable to her employer, slash boyfriend. Things seemed alright for the couple, and Carrie accumulated many lavish gifts during this time. Trouble began when Cercella and his companions got in on the movie theater racket. Extorting the movie business, including by controlling the relevant labor unions, was a lucrative revenue stream. Some listeners might recall it's alluded to in the original Godfather film, before the horse head gets delivered to the bed, right? However, this racket went bad for the outfit once the feds caught on. They began looking for Dick. So he and Carrie went on the lamb. She dyed her blonde hair to black, and they get moving. Eventually, though, he does get caught and locked up in 42. But she dyes her hair red and moves on once again. It's my guess she knew she was in danger of more than just being interviewed by the police again. Meaning she was interviewed originally, leading up to Nick's arrest, but we don't know if she contributed to that or not. Anyway, she's living with a female roommate in a Northside Chicago apartment. That's where she was killed on February 2nd, 1943, while her roommate was at work. She let someone in and started making hot cocoa for two, although we don't know that there was just one guest. What the hot cocoa making indicates is what so often happens with mob hits. The person who kills you is someone you already know and trust. She was on the phone with her cousin Phoebe when she said she had to go because there was a caller at the door. So we know that about 1 p.m., time of her hanging up, is exactly when the killer arrived. Firefighters enter the apartment and find a dead Carrie and a gruesome scene. She'd been tied to a chair and severely tortured with an ice pick and a blunt force instrument. The variety of instruments used varies with which account you read, but the ice pick is normally described as the principal torture tool. When it was finally over, she was soaked in lighter fluid and set on fire. And two very valuable full-length coats, one mink and one sable, were taken. But this kill was clearly not about loot. It was meant to send a message. 
Some think she was suspected of having cooperated with the feds. Others say it was a warning meant to encourage the silence of others. We will never know. But if you think about it, in either of those scenarios, the message is, do not cross the mob. Let's stick to organized crime and the 1939 killing of the very unlucky Irving Puggy Feinstein. Puggy, nickname of course. Puggy lived from 1910 to 1939. Not a very long time, and that's because mob boss Vincent Mangiano put a hit order out on him. It was a Jewish hitman, Abe Kid Twist Relis, and some partners who did the deed. Relis and company worked for the infamous Murder Incorporated, the muscle contracting group for the Italian and Jewish mafia in New York City and beyond. So Kid Twist and company are the kind of guys who get jobs like this done. Puggy was blissfully ignorant of the broken nose crew looking for him, and he was such a low-level operative, it's surprising he managed to warn a hit order from a boss at all. His obscure profile helped him, as Kid Twist and crew simply didn't know what he looked like. Puggy's bad luck involved owing 50 shekels to a loan shark associate of Kid Twist's, Tony Tiny Benson. Called Tiny because he weighed over 400 pounds. Wisely looking to settle with the big man, Puggy walks into the Midnight Roses candy shop, which was no doubt a good place to encounter Tiny. He wasn't there, though, but the hitmen looking for Puggy were, taking a break from their fruitless search and downing egg creams. And, of course, I had to look up what are egg creams. They're an old-time cold treat containing neither eggs nor cream. They're milk, carbonated water, and flavored syrup. And Puggy doesn't know Twist or the others, but can spot fellow wise guys when he sees them. So he walks up and introduces himself, asking if they know where Tiny is. This would, of course, be the last mistake of his life. The crew manages to keep on their poker faces and say they'll take him to Tiny. Instead, they go to Kid Twist's house. There, Kid Twist wakes up his mother-in-law and asks her where he can find some rope and the house ice pick. She tells him and goes back to sleep, and Puggy goes permanently to sleep, after being hogtied and dispatched with the ice pick. And by the way, one of Kid Twist's crew on this job was Pittsburgh Phil Strauss. Wait, everybody has a nickname in the mob, it seems. In a separate incident, Strauss killed the man who ran the Catskill gambling rackets and was suspected of dipping into the till. Strauss stabbed him 32 times with an ice pick and then sent him to the bottom of a lake strapped to a slot machine. One more from the outfit, but this time we're going to Minnesota instead of the usual suspects like Chicago and New York. Israel Ice Pick Willie Alderman was part of the mob's fledgling Las Vegas move and ran with legendary underworld figures like Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. During Prohibition, he had a second-story speakeasy in Minnesota, where he claimed to have killed 11 men with the instrument that gave him his nickname. According to him, he'd stab his victims so quickly and cleanly with the ear method that before they or anyone else knew what had happened, he was leading them to the back room of the bar as if they were a drunk that needed to sleep it off. In the back room, a coal chute was used to expedite the corpse to a waiting truck downstairs that would take the body to its final resting place. Now let's move from East Coast and Midwestern mobsters to West Virginia gentry and a high society whodunit. Huntington, West Virginia. It's the Great Depression, but not everyone is suffering. Certainly not Juliet Enslow and her husband. They were both blue bloods. Her father was the town's first mayor. Meanwhile, her husband was a bank president, a lawyer. He owned, you know, oil and gas interests. They were doing just fine. In 1896, he had a 26-room Victorian mansion built in an area locals dubbed Millionaire's Row. After his passing, she stayed there with at least one adult son and a large house staff. 
This was the scene of many a great Gatsby-esque party over the years, but it was also the scene of Juliet's murder. On October 17, 1936, the chauffeur found her billfold on the driveway. The wallet was dry even though it had rained throughout the night. He alerts the head housekeeper and she goes immediately to check on the lady of the house only to find her brutally murdered in the master bedroom. She was on the floor covered in blood, a towel around her neck. Defensive wounds to her hands and arms sadly prove she was not killed unawares. The poor woman had been beaten before being stabbed as well. It was found she'd been stabbed in the head five times with an ice pick. Three pieces of diamond jewelry were missing, but just like with Estelle Carey, robbery is not a sufficient explanation for the heinous crime. Juliet's 41-year-old son was charged with the murder but acquitted, and the case was never solved. On a pop culture note, I'll mention that the 1992 neo-noir thriller Basic Instinct starring Crook Douglas and Sharon Stone is probably cinema's biggest ice pick moment. Stone, who rocketed to fame via this film, kills a lover with one in a bedroom scene. The tool shows up multiple times in the movie, but back to the sex scene, Stone's behind-the-scenes recollection is fun. At one point, we cut and the actor did not respond. He just lay there, unconscious. I began to panic. I thought that the retractable fake ice pick had failed to retract and that I had in fact killed him. The fury of the sequence coupled with the director screaming, hit him harder, harder, and more blood, more blood, as the guy under the bed pumped more fake blood through the prosthetic chest, had already made me weak. I got up, woozy. Sure, I would pass out. End quote. And in case you can't guess, the male actor did in fact survive. Let's jump all the way to 2017 and a New York City incident with a valuable self-defense lesson. Joseph Smart heard someone knocking on his apartment door late at night on June 18th. A man named Norbert Williams is standing there saying he needs help. Smart comes out to help him and joins the man over in a stairwell. His name may have been smart, but sorry to say, even opening his door was not, much less stepping out. Don't do it. Now let's hear from the district attorney. Quote, The victim was stabbed dozens of times in the head, neck, back, and torso. End quote. Mr. Smart died in that stairwell, and you can guess what he was stabbed with. The crime appeared to have no motive. Personal tangent, in an apartment complex I once lived in, a man called out to me for help from the third floor landing as I walked by three floors down on the ground floor. This was at night. He said he needed help. He sounded like he was in bad shape. Uh, also said he'd called an ambulance and could I come up and keep him company while the ambulance arrived. I instantly responded I would continue to talk to him from where I was and would direct the paramedics to his location when I saw them. As long as we're in modernity, here's a doozy from March 1st, 2009. This one's tough. On that day, in Tenoskit, Washington State, a 25-year-old pregnant woman was found dead close to Fish Lake in a remote area on a private driveway. Sadly, and as with many of our cases involving female victims, she wasn't killed quickly. She had been choked, beaten, and riddled 30 times with our tool. Police were perplexed, and rumors came out that the killing had something to do with drug dealers and the victim's cooperation with the authorities. Well, it turns out this was a murder-for-hire plot, one that started as a murder-the-pregnant-woman's-baby-for-hire plot. The victim was having an affair with a married man, whose wife, Lacey K. Hurst Pavick, 33 at the time, started looking for people who would beat up the other woman to end the pregnancy. This then escalated to flat-out murder, hence the ice pick. 
Investigators accused Pavic of paying a whopping $500 to a three-man team that consisted of a meth dealer, Tonzi Mathis, and his two underlings, David Richards and Brent Phillips. Risking life in prison for a third of $500 qualifies you as an idiot. However, there may have been more to it. Police think Pavic motivated the men partly by telling them the victim was talking to the police about their meth operation. Pavic rents a vehicle from the car dealership she works at. The men use it, clean it, return it afterwards. But of course, that was not enough to cover their tracks. The ice pick, by the way, was not a rented possession, as you can imagine, but it belonged to Richards, who tried the desperate legal strategy of saying Phillips had stolen it from him. That did not work, and all four criminals were convicted. Speaking of poor legal defenses, Pavic tried a variety in 2012 on appeal and lost on all counts. And you can see in these modern stories the oddity we mentioned earlier. This is an anachronistic item. It's no deadlier than a camping or hunting knife, probably less. It's harder to acquire because it's just not very common anymore. And it's harder to explain possession of it to authorities. If you're being searched for whatever reason and you have an ice pick on you, you're instantly going to raise suspicion because no one needs them to break up ice anymore. Today, they're rightly only associated with crime. A woman named Angela Stolt... S-T-O-L-D-T, tried to explain her ice pick by saying it just happened to be in her toolbox, which just happened to be within reach when she needed to defend herself. She was with a man she was having an affair with late at night at a Deltona, Florida graveyard. Yes, graveyard. And these two had a complicated relationship. They lived on the same street, their kids would play together, and everyone thought the man, James Schieffer, was happy with his longtime girlfriend and mother of his children. But he, a limo driver, would frequent Angela's house at night after work, where she lived with her kids. The two would drink copiously and hook up at least once in a while. But this was not some high-intensity love affair or anything. It was just weird. But the real weirdness, it turns out, has to do with the fact that she controlled James's money. He was terrible with finances, had a gambling problem, and his social security was actually deposited directly into her bank account, he not having one. She would then pay his bills from those funds and keep a fee. Fighting over money and frustration over his habit of running through it all and always needing more resulted in that late-night graveyard visit. James had asked if they could use Angela's father's money to backstop the bills. So, as you can tell, it's a difficult situation to untangle. Why is she mad at him if he's running through all of his money? I, I don't know. It's like they were in a relationship, but they weren't. I, she's dependent on him. I, I think maybe she did more than just take a fee. You know, maybe they're both kind of living off of, uh, off of this very limited income. Don't know. He was also a limo driver, like a part-time limo driver, so a little bit of income there as well for these two to use and, and fight over. But apparently she has enough and leads him to believe that she is going to take some of her father's money or that the father agreed to it and then takes him out to the graveyard as part of a plan to reveal that she'd been leading him along as revenge for all the lies that he had told her. So she lets him know she's been lying. She's not going to ask her father for money. She's going to cut him off. I don't know what that means since he seems to be the only one making any money. According to her, he becomes irate, is yelling about, don't you care that my children are going to become homeless, attacks her, and she, like we talked about earlier, supposedly reaches back, finds the ice pick, and defends herself, killing him. If that sounds fishy, just wait. 
she then strangles him with some rope or some kind of a strap that was also in the car, takes his body home, dismembers him with a hacksaw in the garage, cooks his various body parts in her kitchen, tells her daughter the smell is a rat that got caught in the oven, puts the body parts in garbage bags, tells her son it's a deer she ran into on the road, and with his help, drops the bags off at a remote location near the graveyard. So, yeah. Now let's back up a step. Once James went missing, the police, of course, start looking into it, and they were no fools. They became suspicious of Angela. Once they figured out the bizarre financial arrangement, their suspicion spiked to the stratosphere. Still, she's basically getting away with this. James has vanished. He, or really Angela, using his phone, uh, had sent a text saying he needed to disappear for a while because people were looking for him. You know, basically, she plants this cover story with kind of a paper trail, not paper, but you get the point, explaining his absence away via his gambling debts. And then there's this. While I don't think Satanism or anything like that is a part of this case, it is worth noting that police said her house was filthy and included what they could only describe as odd religious symbols or occult symbols, that kind of thing. Maybe that explains the graveyard meeting place. Regardless, like I said, she's basically getting away with this. There is no body, not one that's found. Nobody knows what happened to James. And that's that. That is until, in a truly Shakespearean twist, the guilt and paranoia finally get to Angela. She has a nervous breakdown that causes her sister to call the police. In relating her sister's ramblings to the police over the phone, she includes mention of a killing. Angela consciously or unconsciously related to her sister that she had killed someone, and her sister related that to the police over the phone. Now, that's far from a legally binding confession, of course, but it begins the end for Angela. She confesses, you know, after being brought in, but claims self-defense. That is a claim that, of course, does not hold up. Uh, one of the things the police had found was that she had purchased latex gloves prior to the murder, for instance. And here's what actually happened. She gave James peach, snops, and vodka laced with some of her dad's meds, and then takes him to the graveyard. There, she strangles the half-conscious or maybe completely unconscious James using that rope or strap that she'd brought along for the purpose as well, and then uses the ice pick to make sure he's dead, sticking it in one eye and then the other, kind of twisting it around, revolving it around, just, you know, really, really making sure. For some reason, she left it in there, so it was still stuck in his head when she tried to place it in a pot on her stove, you know, for the cooking. And then she had to pull it out so the head would fit. The cooking was, she claims, an attempt to get rid of the flesh, to kind of shrink the body down. She said she thought it would turn to ash if she used enough heat, uh, hence the dead burning rat story for her daughter. Anyone who's ever cooked meat knows that's not how this works, but regardless. This very unpleasant part of the story is why the medical examiner ended up testifying, quote, Among other things recovered was a soup pot containing Schieffer's thigh bone, kneecap, and some soft tissue, end quote. She ends up leading the police to where the body parts had been dumped and the bags had been ransacked by animals. You know, it's ironic that in our last episode we covered a weapon that can easily kill with just one strike, and yet not one of our incidents was truly a murder committed with that weapon or just that weapon. Meanwhile, every story we've covered today with this tiny little tool is a killing. And I think that speaks more to the way this tool is used versus the last, which as a reminder was the medieval mason chain flail, than to some super inherent deadliness in the ice pick. 
I think we can hazard a guess that the famous mob hits of the 40s in that general era turned this instrument into kind of a premeditated murder favorite or go-to. And then it became that kind of tool in the popular imagination, like we talked about. And so you get a 21st century meth head or meth dealer taking one to a planned killing. And for the other side of things, let's get away from brutal killings and check in on just a nice old-fashioned bar brawl. This happened on June 8th, 1946, and was written up in the Altoona Tribune. That's in Pennsylvania. Headline, Two Injured for Arrested in Tavern Fight. Quote, One man was stabbed with an ice pick, and another was hit on the head with a hammer and a length of one-half-inch pipe in a brawl centering about Bill Ajay's beer garden at Maple Avenue and 29th last night, which culminated in the arrest of four men. Patrons fled as approximately five dozen beer bottles were hurled about, police said. End quote. This indicates what I found evidence of elsewhere, and is unsurprising. The ice pick wasn't just an assassination instrument. It was in the mix of tough guy EDC tools back in the day. For those who don't know, EDC means everyday carry and is a self-defense term. In case trouble found you during your day, some guys carried and carry. Saps, blackjacks, brass knuckles, switchblades, etc. Some carried ice picks. Let's stick to Pennsylvania, but go to the town of York at this time. This is from January 14, 1959, and the local paper said, quote, A York mother of four children was convicted by a jury yesterday of aggravated assault and battery in the ice pick stabbing of another woman. Mrs. Banks was accused of inflicting seven wounds on Mrs. Margaret Durham during an argument on August 25th. Mrs. Durham accused Mrs. Banks of being friendly with her husband. End quote. I included that one because, one, the last line in the article made me laugh. Sorry. Two, this shows a woman wielding our tool, but back in the day. And remember, the heyday for the ice pick was when the patriarchy was in full swing, so there were a lot of housewives, and the ice pick was a domestic instrument. It was a kitchen tool. Not shocking, then, that a woman, who presumably stayed at home with her four kids, would resort to one in a fit of anger. Speaking of women users, let's hop over to Jamaica, but the time was just last year. This is from a local paper called The Gleaner, established in 1834. Anyway, quote, Charged is 26-year-old Donnell Davis, otherwise called Dora, of Blue Peace District in St. Catherine. The deceased has been identified as 18-year-old Dane Stevenson, otherwise called Tai-Tai, a mason of Riversdale. About 6.15 p.m., Stevenson and Davis had an altercation during which she used an ice pick to stab him in the chest. He was transported to hospital where he was admitted but he later succumbed to his injuries on Sunday, November 6. Davis subsequently turned herself in to the Riversdale police, where she was charged, following a question-and-answer session, end quote. I didn't know there was a specific kind of headache called an ice pick headache. Ouch. But, according to the Cleveland Clinic, quote, An ice pick headache is an uncommon headache disorder. It causes a sudden, sharp, stabbing head pain. This pain comes on unexpectedly and lasts a few seconds. People who have these headaches equate the pain to being stabbed in the head or eye with an ice pick, end quote. Again, this speaks to how famous the old-time kitchen tool became, in regards to being used on people, I would say. How about a little more on the science of stabbing, which we touched on earlier with the ear canal kill method. This is from the website ScienceDirect, quote, Four examples of fatal penetrating stab wounds of the head and brain are described. In three of these, the weapon used was probably an ice pick, and in one, a thin bladed knife. 
In two of these, the small surface wounds on the scalp were concealed by the hair and not detected clinically, and in one case a small wound on the forehead was mistaken for a superficial laceration. In two examples of stab wounds of the neck and left common carotid artery, a mural thrombus developed in the artery wound and gave rise to an embolus which lodged in the left middle cerebral artery, causing death from cerebral infarction." End quote. Unexpected that even stabs to the head can go unnoticed with an ice pick or something like it. And the way a stab to the neck can cause a fatal brain injury was new to me. But then again, I'm not a doctor, and you can definitely tell that by the way I pronounced those medical terms. I mentioned antique shops earlier. The Antique Ice Tool Museum in Pennsylvania, wow, that's our all-star state uh, this episode. I love quirky museums, by the way. That one has antique ice tools, as the name implies, and that includes an assortment of ice picks. And these remind us that they didn't always have to be the plain Jane wooden handle version that comes to mind when you think of one of these things, if you've ever seen one. It turns out that just like with anything else, there were high-end models. Elaborate sculpted handles in metal were made. So that's just something to keep in mind when envisioning some of our crimes, like poor Mrs. Enslow's. You know, in that Victorian mansion, I imagine it was a, a rather ornate ice pick that was used. And in terms of current day ice picks, they actually come in a wide variety. Just go look on Amazon. A bit odd, since practically no one needs one to break up large chunks of ice anymore. Some are obviously designed for this kind of throwback hipster kitchen purpose. They're really stylish. And I'm sure more than a few weapon EDC seekers buy them because of one, the history, and two, how cool these modern versions look. Others are clearly meant to be weapons, and, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, but there's some where I think that's clearly the purpose that the creator has in mind. There's titanium ones, pseudo-Renaissance-looking sculpted ones, and even a retractable model, which reminds us of the movie Basic Instinct and the Sharon Stone story. However, this retractable model is meant to be lethal when it's extended. If in future seasons I return to some previously covered weapons, the ice pick will definitely be one of them because it was used so much during its tenure. Little did the inventors of this simple tool imagine their creation would become a true criminal classic and one that would far outlive its original purpose. That was the great blind Willie McTell and his partner who warned listeners a long time ago about a fundamental truth. We are born to die. But running into someone motivated who's holding an ice pick can expedite that process. And that is going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. By the way, our title, The Iceman Cometh, comes from a famous 1946 Broadway play. That's when it debuted, right at the height of the ice pick's popularity. Please remember to rate and review the podcast if so inclined. Thanks a lot.